How ironic is it that the power of absence challenged him so profoundly? He'd made an artistic pilgrimage of sorts to behold a holder of saints' relics, a reliquary in Dublin, and fully expected to experience being in the presence of the carefully crafted container and the heart of St. Laud within. The shock came upon learning the heart of the saint had been stolen by thieves, and the absence of the expected presence was compelling, so much so that artist James Melinda returned to the States to, in some sense, fill that absence. Now, we could conduct a thought experiment at this point. The whole situation might be described metaphorically this way. The symbol of a holy heart that had gone missing could put us in mind of the way certain formal, traditional, might we say, spiritual experience has gone missing too in our time. How in the 21st century is it possible to transcend or transform such a feeling of absence in a manner that still provides a way for humans to find meaning and delight in their world at the more than material level? Probably not a fair consideration at all, but when we behold the heart-filled reliquaries created for St. Laud by James Melinda, we are moved on some level. It's not just the form, or the materials, or the colors, or the scale. It's all of those aspects interacting, cohering, making a whole greater than any one part, even though the heart may be the focal point. Melinda has said, the forms in metal, and specifically the wall pieces I create, range in size from 18 inches to 6 feet and are a commitment to making the 14 stations of the cross as secular wall sculptures. The intent is to make these works in such a way as to physically and aesthetically challenge the viewer in the space she or he would occupy while viewing the pieces. The material used is enamel, aluminum, and copper. With this series, I hope to capture the spirit and passion of these centuries-old icons and transcend the dogma of organized religion while communicating the intrinsic and eternal values which the stations have represented for ages. Melinda was challenged in the presence of that Irish absence to create a series of remarkable works, and he hopes that when we stand in their presence, we'll be challenged in some way. By what? Maybe a sense of presence, a sense of playfulness sometimes. We're invited into the presence of a number of pieces by James Melinda in his studio this weekend as part of the 25th anniversary open house weekend in Susquehanna County, October 9th, 10th, and 11th. A number of artists will open their studios and offer us the chance to visit the places they work and also discover the Susquehanna County-made works that result. We had a chance to speak by phone with James Melinda of Brackney, Pennsylvania, about his work with metals and enameling. His interest in art started in Kingston, Pennsylvania, as we learn. My father, he was a carpenter and a painter, and he would do a lot of woodworking, too. He would uh, make animals. He had, he had a, uh, a bandsaw, and uh, he was quite good at it. 
And I think maybe that's what sort of got me inspired. In, in high school, I wasn't too motivated. It wasn't until uh, I guess I went to work and decided I need to, to do something that's going to cause me my interest to peak and do something that's worthwhile. So I was working for IBM, and I went to school to study graphic design. And uh, the more I was doing graphics, the less I liked it, and the more I was doing, found myself doing fine art. And I was doing painting and sculpture, and I suddenly decided I was at Kent State as an undergraduate, and um, all these big paintings and sculptures I was doing, I was able to do on a smaller scale when I took an enameling course. Enameling, to some people, is kind of... uh, artsy craftsy, I thought, well, I'll do, I'll do maybe a couple of pieces, I'll be out of here, and that'll be the end of it. Well, it really, it really got me interested, captivated me, and I discovered that I could take all of these big ideas that I had and scale them down. And that's when I truly understood the idea of monumentality, and that monumentality doesn't necessarily have to be big. It can be, it's the presence of being large, so it can be small as well. And so after, after that, I went back to work at IBM uh, as an illustrator and wasn't, again, satisfied. So I went to graduate school. I went to graduate school at SUNY New Paltz, and that's where I got my MFA and discovered uh, metal smithing and metal forming. I got a job. I was fortunate right out of graduate school, and I taught for 40 years and making art for 40 years. I retired from Kutztown University in 2015. I worked for East Carolina University in their study abroad program where I taught in Certaldo, Italy. Were you drawn to the glass making in Italy? Did you have any experience with that? I have done some glass work. I've done uh, you know, glass blowing. I have a, a, a kiln here in my studio where I, I do casting. But I'm an enamelist. Now, enamel is, is glass, but it's fused on, on metal. So it's not uh, free-formed or, or blown glass. You can think of it as, uh, you know, as painting, painting with glass. But enamel is all around us. You know, your stove is probably has enamel on it. Your bathtub is probably enameled. In Europe, most of the, uh, the signage on highways is enamel. Enamel is a real, real durable material, and it has the most incredible color. Well, it is, it is glass, and it does wonderful things with, with light. That's what attracted me to the, uh, to the enamel also. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get what I was looking for in pigment or in print or any of the, uh, the other mediums or even ceramic lasers, but it's very similar to ceramic lasers. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't work well with ceramics. It was just too soft for me. Uh, I know there are different ways of working it, but it didn't have enough resistance. So that's why I guess I, I started working with metal. When you were talking about you couldn't get what you were looking for through pigments, I see on your website what struck me were the hearts because the colors there, there's not a sentimental breath about that. It gives me the chills to think about the reds that you get in your hearts. That's a nice, that's a nice way of putting it. I, I appreciate that. Now, that has a whole different, those hearts have a story to them, too. I went to Ireland with my daughter. I was still teaching. It was over, I guess, winter break. And we were in Dublin. And, you know, I, I map out things that I want to see if I, if I go to Europe. And I wanted to see something called St. Loud's Reliquary at Christ Church in Dublin. So we went, and we went to a service. I think one of the best ways of looking at churches and cathedrals is if you can take part in a service that plants you somewhere in the, in the space, and you can, you can see things in a different way than just walking around. So anyway, we were there for a chorale presentation. After the presentation, I asked the sextant, so where is the St. Loud's reliquary that I've been reading about? And he had this horrific look on his face, and he says to me, haven't you heard? And I said, haven't I heard what? 
said, they stole it. I said, they stole it? He said, yeah, they stole the heart. They stole the relic. And so I said, so where is it? So he showed me where it was. And sure enough, we went down there. And uh, someone had taken bolt cutters. And the, the heart was surrounded by a cage. It looked like a, a bronze cage. And someone had taken bolt cutters and cut through the cage and taken the heart out. So I really liked that story. It really was intriguing. So I came back to Kutztown, or to Fleetwood, where I was living, and decided I need to make some uh, reliquaries for, for St. Loud. And so that's where it all started. Uh, I made a series of three of these reliquaries, and um, then I continued to use the hearts for, for different pieces. I make belt buckles out of them, pins, this and that. But they're an interesting form, and uh, I'm, I'm really uh, glad that you like the color. Uh, the red's in there. That was the impetus. That's where, that's where the hearts came from. You used the word presence in a small form. There is presence there, even on the screen of a computer. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad they do that to you. In the studio tour, you show us how you work with what was a flat piece of copper and how you make it into a convex form. Uh, yeah. And so you then take the mallet and work with it in such a way that you make a matching pair and then you weld them together? How do they come together? Well, these pieces I, I didn't weld together. I, I use a lot of cold connections, rivets and tabs to hold the metal together. I find it's, it's better for me than brazing or welding the metal and it gives another dimension to the piece. If I make the, the connections visible, then they become part of the design. And I think there's, there's also something nice and honest about cold connections. When you can see the way a piece is fabricated, it's, it maybe goes back to the old arts and crafts tradition where you show how things are made. You don't hide how things are made. You know, there's a, there's a joy in the way they're made and a celebration. And so if I can put a piece together cold, I put it together cold instead of uh, hot, as, as we would say, by welding or, or by brazing. Also, with the enamel, since the enamel has to go into, uh, into a kiln, and the kiln is like 1,500 degrees, somewhere around there. Depending on how you, if you were to, to put the metal together with heat, you can open up your seams, and that causes all kinds of problems. So if you're working with the base metal, if I put uh, a piece together with copper, copper tabs or copper rivets, copper melts at 2,000 degrees, so I know those seams are not going to come apart. When you are working with enamel and going to heat it, do you control the color? Do you intend what the colors will be? Are you surprised when the heat decreases and you can take the pieces out? What's the degree of your control over the colors that you are working with? All of the above. Everything you said is just is factored into it. I usually start with drawings. I do a lot of drawings, a lot of color studies. And I, I say, this is the way I want the piece to be. I know it's not going to be that way necessarily. So there's a lot of preparation. And then there's a lot that happens when the piece is fired. Like if you're not getting the color you want, you're going to have to adjust. It's like working a painting. You know, if a painting is not working, you wipe it out. You take a, you take a rag and you wipe the surface off and you go back and then paint it. There's kind of a dialogue that you have with the piece. You, you know, you do something to the piece, you fire the piece, the piece responds, it talks to you. And so you go back and forth. And our, I guess our version of wiping, uh, wiping paint off is we can grind the enamel off. We can take a stone and grind what we don't want off and then go back and work it. How ancient is the art of enameling? We think of Fabergé eggs, but way, way, uh, way, way back? Yeah, Kenneth Bates, who was uh, probably one of the better-known enamelists of the last century, wrote a couple of books, Principles in Enamel and The Enamelist, and he takes it back to, uh, to the Egyptians. So 
So, and then you'll, you'll get some argument there. Some people will say that what the Egyptians were doing was just ceramic. It was glass-fired on clay to make eyes for statues. So they're saying it's not true enamel. So at least the Greeks anyway, but Bates would say the, uh, uh, the Egyptians. So it's a, it does have a very long history, yeah. And Fabergé, of course, is, uh, is one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful stuff. Lalique, pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think of Lalique for his glass. But he was also a fine jeweler, beautiful jeweler and uh, an enamelist. And, you know, and, and speaking of jewelry, you know, Calder was a jeweler, as, as well as making these wonderful mobiles and stabiles. He did exquisite jewelry. There was, a, there was a show, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago at the Philadelphia Museum. It was also at the Met of Calder's Jewelry. And it's just incredible stuff. Now, there's no enamel in it, but they look like studies for the uh, mobiles and stabiles. They're beautiful. It looks like jewelry is not an afterthought for you. It looks like they're very playful. They're very wonderful and special. Each piece clearly unique. It looks like you take time with each of them. Yeah. yeah. Some, sometimes I use the jewelry for, for studies, you know, like, like Calder might do. I don't know if you, you know if you had mobiles or stabiles in mind at the time, but actually sometimes I will work out color problems with the jewelry pieces, a connecting problem sometimes. But yeah, you're right. I, I think of them as very individual pieces. And um, I, do, I do work in series, and I have a, a hydraulic press that allows me to repeat forms, make them over and over. But each one, I think I address as being special and unique. And you use forms that are created by nature from the sea often. Yeah, yeah. I was using a lot of shells. In fact, it's not on my website, but I just completed a bunch of spectacle pieces that are made out of shells. So the, the, the lenses would be shells. This is, it's hard to describe on the, on the radio, but, you know, the golden mean, the golden triangle, the golden shell. When they take a shell, they cut the shell in half, and it makes the concentric circle. And this is supposed to be the best proportions. This is where you place your focal point and all of that kind of theory. Well... I got these shells, and rather than me cutting them in the short way to make a circle, I cut them laterally. So rather than a circle, the shells make an ellipse, and so I ground them down. And if you can think of a, a pair of spectacles or eyeglasses that are elliptical in form. So I made frames or pince-nez tops that would attach to the shell. And so it's like this, this ellipse is making the eyeball. Yeah, I, I like shells, too, and seahorses I worked with for a while. And they're nice to cast. You could actually take, you know, take a seahorse and burn it out and cast it in place. And they're quite nice. And also, I've been working with cuttlefish a lot, which is like a, uh, like a squid. Like a sm- it's not a squid. It's like a small squid. But speaking of history, the history of technique, cuttlefish casting goes back 4,000 years. And there's a technique where you take the bone that's in the cuttlefish if, if you have a parrot or birds, you'll sometimes see these cuttlefish in the cage where the, the birds will uh, either sharpen their beak or it's supposed to aid in digestion. But it's a bone that's inside the cuttlefish. And if you take it and, and cut it and carve into it, you can cast silver, brass, bronze directly into the, uh, into the cuttlefish. And it has this incredible pattern in it. And you keep the pattern. And you either use it as is, or what I had been doing is enameling over it. So you have this ready-made surface. If you put a transparent color over it, you have this beautiful, wonderful pattern underneath the color. So, yeah, now that you mentioned it, I guess I, I, I've done a lot with, with sea life. Again, each way, each detail, and the placement. For example, you have the seahorses on either side of the stem of a chalice. That goes back to I was invited to do a show in Korea 
It was a, a wedding ritual show. And so I think I made six pieces for this show. And one of them I wanted to make a bride and groom cup. So I, I, research, I researched it. And so the, the top part, the vessel that holds the wine or whatever the, the couple would, would drink, was raised in one solid piece. Then it was cut in half and then put back together again with what looks to be like, like maybe a drain pipe that connects both of these halves. So the liquid, the wine, can circulate or co-mingle between both of these vessels. And the birds on that piece symbolize the lovebirds. But the seahorses, I, uh, I guess I put that on there for children or for propagating, having a family, and sharing with child caring, because the male seahorse, from what I understand, is the, uh, the one who takes care of the children. So I thought that would be a nice, nice element to include in those pieces. And while we're in this area in talking about your work, you mentioned series, and you have actually created a series of Stations of the Cross, but they're yeah. not what we would see when we walk into most of the churches we know. Yeah, probably not. Well, Bernard Newman, the painter, did a series of Stations of the Cross. He did 15. Actually, liturgically today, there are supposed to be 14. I've done 13. I have one, one more to do. But if you look at Newman's stations, they're what people know of him as his zip paintings, but they're not zip paintings. There's 15 of them. They're non-objective. They're black paint on unprimed canvas, and they're in the, uh, in the National Gallery in, uh, uh, in Washington. I, I didn't work figuratively. Uh, I didn't work uh, in a narrative form. I think in some ways there's more communication between people who don't understand each other, don't speak the same language, aren't familiar with Christianity and the events that happened at the stations. But in that way, with, without them being literal or figurative, there's more connection, there's more communication with the people who don't necessarily understand the whole story. If you talked about Newman's black quality, and we think about Mark Rothko and the Rothko Chapel, too. They're all dark and that maroon. Yours have color. What role does color play in these evocations? You sometimes refer to them as icons, actually. Yeah, I, I guess in some ways they are. You know, they might represent the colors of like, like, like Mary, blue, if there's blue being used. There's one station, the third station, where Christ falls a third time. I have reds and purples, which, which uh, to me sort of symbolize or look like a battered and bruised body. So there, you know, there, there are things that I, that I use. Symbolically, I will use, use color. And the forms themselves, you've chosen to use forms that repeat? Yeah, some repeat, some don't. Um, I guess the form, the, the two halves that you were, we were talking about before that I put together, I joined together, I guess for the most part symbolize uh, the, the body of Christ, you know, if you want to get literal about it. And you could even think of, you know, the, the host being taking that form, the circular form. And those forms, concave and convex, coming together as we spoke about. Well, you have humor in so many ways. Your, your glasses, your spectacles are so full of humor, and the jewelry so often a wonderful sense of humor. So, yes, there is profundity and, and a remarkable range. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I, try, I try to keep it light sometimes. You know, sometimes it has to be light, sometimes it has to be heavy. You know, it depends on, on what you're trying to say. With this tour, are people, because of the pandemic, are people going to actually be able to see your studio? How is that working? Yes. Yes, they will. Uh, it will be open. Last year, we didn't have an open studio tour. It was, it was virtual. But this year, the, the studios will be, will be open. 
And there will be signage that asks or requests that you wear a mask. If you had your, uh, your shots, it's not necessary. But uh, it's pretty much open. There are fewer artists this year. Last year, there was none. As I said, it was virtual. But in 2019, I think there were 23 artists. This year, there's uh, 13. Well, leave us with the word that you call your practice. Well, it's monumental. M-O-N-U-M-E-T-A-L. Melinda Monumental. And that has to do with just what you told us at the beginning, right? The scale isn't the point. It's yep. the, the presence. That's Yeah, that's correct. And I just hope people will go to take a tour and see it in person. I hope so. I'll have about five or six uh, piece of sculpture pieces set up with good lighting. And um, I've got about 18 or 20 uh, jewelry pieces and a couple of teapots. Are you a tea drinker? Yeah, my wife is uh, my wife is Canadian and so I do drink a lot of tea. But I made a series of teapots. There's a a British designer named Christopher Dresser, a Victorian designer who did glass, um, who did glass, who did ceramics and did metal and furniture, sort of like uh, Morris, William Morris, but his teapots are just exquisite. There's nothing like them. They're as contemporary today as they would have been in like 1875. And so I sat down with myself and said, if I was to have tea with Christopher Dresser, what kind of a teapot would he enjoy having tea out of? And so I made these four teapots that I thought Christopher might, Christopher Dresser might enjoy having his tea served from. They're made out of copper tubing and uh, they're silver plated and they have onyx on them and they're pierced, so they kind of look like Swiss cheese. If you were to first look at them, you would say, you know, that pot is going to leak. Well, it's not because the tubes go all the way through. So there's a void going, going through uh, the larger tube. So I don't make a lot of teapots. I only made the four, all for him. All for him. James Melenda of Brackney, Pennsylvania, speaking about his work with metals and enameling. It was two weeks ago that the Enamel Arts Foundation in Los Angeles acquired 16 of his pieces, consisting of stations, station studies, spectacles, and jewelry. The work will be placed in the collections of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Yale University Art Gallery, the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento, and the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts in Little Rock. Melinda will be part of the 25th anniversary open house weekend in Susquehanna County, October 9th, 10th, and 11th. A number of artists will invite us into their studios to see where they work and also discover the works that result. And if you check James Melinda's website, there is a short video studio tour, and we see him there taking us through, and he's so very neat. And he tells us that he has to be neat or he won't be able to find anything he needs. But the 25th anniversary open house is this weekend in October every year. And they've been doing it for 25 years. And there's a map that comes with such studio tours. And you can find your way from the New York State border, Brackney, and right down to Montrose and beyond. We have a chance to find all that we need on the website artistsplural.tour.com, artiststour.com, and you'll be able to follow the orange arrows and make the circuit in and around Susquehanna County. And they choose this weekend, of course, because of the wonderful chance to see the fall foliage. There are also 
complementary events that are listed on Friday. There'll be a virtual opening ceremony. Saturday, October 9th, the Susquehanna County Library will have a mini blueberry festival presence and all kinds of things will be happening like demonstrations of painting. And you can find all of this online at artiststour.com, artiststour.com. And it is the weekend that's approaching us, October 9th, 10th, and 11th, 10 a.m. to 6 daily. And for more information, artiststour.com. Join us tomorrow for a conversation with Kirk Van Zanbergen, and he'll talk with us about the photography that he and Leslie Van Zanbergen, his wife, create in Brackney. And to see the studio tour I mentioned, the short video studio tour of James Melenda, and to get a sense of his works, you can check his website, which is melendamonumental.com. As he explained to us, monumental is how he refers to his work. So it's M-A-L-E-N-D-A-M-O-N-U-M-E-T-A-L.com, melendamonumental.com. Dot com.